0: From an undisclosed location, you are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. This
1: is the Brian Lilly Podcast.
2: It's been quite the week, whether we're talking about politics, parliament rising for the summer, they had their last sitting before the October 19th general federal election, or if we're talking about what was happening in Charleston, South Carolina. The horrific attack on a black church, the attempt to start a race war, and the decision of the people of Charleston to say, no, we won't give that to you. An incredible week. We're going to talk about both of those things on the podcast today. Welcome to the Brian Lilly podcast, the Father's Day edition. Recording this portion on my back deck, so you're going to hear my neighbors working in their yards. You might hear a lawnmower start up. One just shut down moments before I started recording, and uh, I'll sit on the back deck Enjoy a beer in the great Canadian tradition of how we talk politics. But as I said, I'll talk about Charleston because I think it's important to highlight not just the murderous spree, not just the racism that drove Dylan Roof to do what he did, but the incredible reaction of the victims' families, the wider community of Charleston. Also going to talk to Warren Kinsella about all things political and get his take on the polls, the polls being up, being down. But there is a trend line that's appearing. We'll talk about that with Kinsella and what what it means for Tom Alcare to be on top, what Trudeau and Harper have to do to turn things around. And my friend Jessica Murphy will join us. She uh, she is back in Canada after 18 months, two years, working in Washington, D.C., covering politics there. So she's covered politics in both capitals and has a unique perspective, one that I think you'll really enjoy. But this week in Ottawa, what happened? Well, the campaign really did get underway. I've been saying since last October the campaign is underway in many ways. that's true. All the politicians, all the parties have been campaigning. They've had ads, they've had you know petition drives. they have been trying to set themselves up as the guardians of this policy or that policy, this group or that group. But on Friday, with little fanfare. The House of Commons rose. They were supposed to sit until Tuesday, as is often the case. They get to a certain point where they just realize they're not going to get any more business passed through the House, and so they adjourn. So they've headed back to their writings. Now normally I say that MPs going back to their writings does not mean they're on vacation. I know some of my media colleagues love to say, the MPs are on vacation. No, not the case. I take a politician you like, take a politician you hate. Regardless, you would not want their schedule, unless you happen to pick the laziest politician. But the majority of MPs, the majority of members of provincial legislatures, the majority of city councillors, aren't those people. From the time I started covering city hall politics, I realized you did not want the schedule of a politician, unless you just like never being home and perpetually busy. So the MPs are heading back, but instead of just running around their ridings going to town halls and listening to different committees and doing photo ops. Well, they'll be doing all of that, but all of it with an eye on campaigning for October. And we saw a couple of things happen this week. As I said, the NDP up in the polls, not just one poll, not two, three now, putting the New Democrats and Tom Mulcair as the preferred choice. In another poll, uh, the NANOs poll, which I don't talk a whole lot about, there is actually... um, Mulcair is nipping at Stephen Harper's heels for preferred prime minister. Because as much as the conservatives haven't been doing great in the polls, they are doing well in terms of Stephen Harper still being the preferred prime minister over Justin Trudeau and Tom Mulcair. But Mulcair is rising up Trudeau at a 12-month low. So this sets the scene for Tom Mulcair coming out of his caucus meeting on Wednesday, Final caucus meeting of the parliamentary calendar, so he was surrounded by all the New Democrat MPs that had been in the meeting with him. All there to show uh, you know, some strength, show force, and cheer on their leader, who stood up in front of journalists and was not laughed at. He was not laughed at. A couple of years ago, he would have been laughed at for this, or people would have said, "Well, you know, great, you're running to be prime minister," but we all know it's not going to happen. And New Democrats privately would tell you that it wouldn't happen. But now Tom Mulcair is calling himself and his party a government-in-waiting and he has to be taken seriously. So whether it's in terms of standing up to the government in that part of our role of official opposition or showing that indeed we are a government-in-waiting, I I think we've uh, met the test on both counts. For example, uh, with regard to standing up to the government, even though we were being told that uh, over 80% of Canadians were in favour of Bill C-51, we took a strong principled stance and said that for us it was a non-starter. We were going to vote against it. We were going to listen in committee. We were going to propose amendments. If the government wasn't able to convince us that any of uh, that bill was worth retaining, then we would simply abolish it. We would repeal it. So is it all C-51 that's driving Tom Mulcair up and Trudeau down because Trudeau supported it? We'll get into that in a little bit with Kinsella, but I don't think that's all there is to it. I think that there's several factors. Fatigue with the current government. Absolutely nobody stays in power for 10 years without the voters, to a certain extent, becoming tired of you. They're just tired of your face, and even even your supporters are less enthusiastic than they used to be. But you've also got the, the ads working on Trudeau, and don't tell me they're not. The ads have been working on Trudeau, the ones that say he's not ready. They don't say he's an idiot. They don't say he's a fool. They say he's not ready. And that plays to a preconceived notion that people have of is a man that's 43 years old, ready to lead the country. A man who's 43, but everyone thinks is in his 30s because he likes to act youthful. And while that may have worked for getting him the liberal leadership, will that work against him to becoming prime minister? So you've got C-51, you've got the ads on Trudeau, you've got uh, Harper just you know wearing thin on people, and you've got Mulcair looking serious. He looks like a, a a man that could be prime minister, and, and that is an important part of the job. So you've got role reversals going on right now. The Conservatives are sticking to their game plan. They're going to keep attacking Trudeau. They're going to keep putting their stuff in the window. But the Liberals, talk to any liberals they, they are worried. They're panicking. And so on Tuesday, as Mulcair was in uh, Toronto speaking to a Bay Street crowd trying to make sure that... Um, They knew he was a a serious man, that he wasn't a uh, crazy tax-and-spend socialist, just a regular socialist. Trudeau and the Liberals moved up their announcement of a democratic reform package.
1: I'm here to talk about our comprehensive
0: plan to modernize government. It starts with openness and transparency.
2: Now, when you have promised open and transparent nominations... And yet you've got, what, a dozen different ridings across the country that are being contested, that are uh, claims of favoritism, claims of the central party interfering, uh, appointed or favored candidates, court cases going on. When you promised open and transparent nominations and then failed over two years consecutively to deliver on that, you shouldn't say that openness and transparency is what you're going to bring to government because you don't have a leg to stand on. It just it doesn't work. It's not there. But that was Trudeau's idea. That was his big plan. That and changing absolutely everything about the way that we vote in this country. Now, I don't happen to particularly think that that is a good idea. I don't think that uh, throwing out the the first-past-the-post system is something that we should be behind. But let me play a little bit more of Justin Trudeau on his electoral reform ideas because he wants to change the way that we vote, but asked at a news conference Wednesday whether he would allow Canadians to, to vote in a plebiscite on whatever proposals he comes up with. He said, eh, no. I'm not going to uh, prejudge the outcome of, uh, of this uh, upcoming election. Uh, But as I said in my platform, we are uh, fully committed to uh, serious, in-depth consultation with Canadians, uh, drawing on an all-party committee to study uh, the forms of governance and of elections uh, that will serve Canadians' interests, not just in the short term, uh, but in many, many elections to come. And that's a conversation that Canadians uh, feel it's high time to have because our current system uh, is not uh, valuing the vote and the input of far too many Canadians. So that's a fail on openness and transparency. It's a fail on being an actual champion of democracy. If you're going to say that you're the champion of democracy, maybe you want to give people a vote. But here's the problem. In British Columbia, Ontario, and PEI, when this has been proposed, when changing the electoral system has been proposed, voters have looked at the options, they've weighed them, and they've said no when they've been given the vote. So people have considered what's there, considered what the best minds in the country have come up with and said, you know what, for all the problems we have with first-past-the-post, it beats the idea of proportional representation, which I will tell everyone until the cows come home, whether we're talking... Full proportional representation, where your party gets 40% of the votes, they get 40% of the seats, or a mixed member, where you still elect a, a local MP, but then the parties get a certain number of seats based on their percep- uh, uh, percentage of the vote. Either way, it takes power away from voters and hands it to party bosses who will pick the candidates that are on the slate. And so if only the top 30 of their 100 candidates Get to go into the House. Well, guess who decides who those candidates are? The party. Not you. Not you, the voter. And so whether you support that party or not, maybe you think they're the top 10 guys that they're putting in are all idiots. Maybe you think they're the wrong people for your party. You won't have a say. It's a bad idea to say you're going to reform democracy and then give more power to party bosses. We need less power to the party officials in, in this system. And that applies to all parties. That's a problem with Trudeau's proposal. That's a problem with what he's talking about. We'll talk more with about that with Warren Kinsella. In the meantime, do make sure you check out the Facebook page. Join the discussion there. Thousands of great Canadians are already engaging. Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. And if you want to join up with the, uh, the website for the mailing list, which honestly I'll get on one day, BrianLilly.com. Uh, you can also order the book there, CBC Exposed, still selling copies of that. You want an autograph copy mailed directly to you, you can do it there, com. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast coming to you right now from my back deck, up in moments, my conversation earlier in the week with Warren Kinsella. You're listening to the Brian Lilly Podcast.
3: Check Brian out at facebook.com slash Lilly. He's hated in official Ottawa. Love by you. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast.
2: There's always a flurry of political activity as the house gets ready to rise for the summer. And part of that political activity for the last little while has been a series of polls, all trying to take the pulse of the Canadian public. And they come up with different results, which is problematic, but there's a trend there, and it is the NDP doing well. Warren Kinsella, no stranger to Canadian politics, joins me now from Toronto. Warren, let's talk about where the polls are at because it's got to be problematic. You know, the Conservatives have spent all this time focusing on trying to beat Justin Trudeau, uh, coming up with messages about how he's just not ready. The Liberals, I think, just got used to the idea that they were leading in the polls for two years, and suddenly Tom's there, and it's not actually all about Alberta.
0: I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the big mistakes that uh, strategists sometimes make in a few-way race is to think that it's a zero-sum game. That is, you know, if they... If the Tories chip away at the Liberals, then the benefit accrues only to them. Or if the Liberals go after the Conservatives, the benefit goes to the Liberals. But what it what the two main parties seem to have forgotten is the third guy, and the third guy has started to acquire a lot of credibility by virtue of things like in Alberta, you know, by virtue of the fact that they've thrown out a lot of their, or seemingly thrown out a lot of their so-called radical. Uh, policies, so you know it's a case of Trudeau peaking too soon, and Tom Mulcair peaking at a right, at exactly the right moment. Well, I'm I'm
2: thinking Mulcair could have peaked too soon as well. That could be happening, and there's a long time between now and uh, the the election on October 19th. So a- anything could happen between now and then, and that's what makes it interesting and exciting, although terrifying for any of the strategists.
0: Yeah, for sure, and you're you're absolutely right. You know, the the old cliche is that a week is a lifetime in politics, and it's one of those cliches that happens to be true. You know, Rachel Notley, just before the Alberta campaign kicked off, was in a distant third place. Nobody, nobody, including Rachel Notley, was thinking that she had a shot at becoming a majority premier in the province of Alberta. So weird things can happen. Well, I, I always
2: point to federally, uh, the last interview I did with John Wright from Ipsos Reed just before the 2005 election campaign kicked off, and Paul Martin was at a solid 37 percent, and the conservatives were well back at about 25, 26, and campaigns matter, and, and they turned things around. There were a lot of things that happened in that campaign, but campaigns matter.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's the one of the reasons why weird guys like you and me love politics, is it's it is unpredictable. You know, it's not something that you can chart out on a linear graph. Weird things can happen. So I've got a column coming out in the Hill Times next week, just mapping out what some of those things can be. You okay, know, like so a, a, what do
2: like you think is happening? Like a big weather event,
0: like Sandy. You know, um, Hurricane Sandy in the states. Uh, another terrorism event, like the two terrible events that we had in October. Um, you know, the debates, not that there's a knockout punch in the debates, but as is likely now, the debates aren't going to be seen at all. People are having difficulty finding this. All no, I, 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 don't,
2: I don't think that at all. I think that the broadcast networks will eventually say, you know what, we'll air the Globe and Mail debate on the economy. And And, and I think they'd be foolish not to because it's been made clear that it's open to them.
0: But it's hard to, at this stage, I mean, that may happen, but what we're dealing with right now is a very weird and different situation than what we've had historically. And the the other thing, you know, to keep in mind is, uh, I think a lot of political people, because they're consumed by their own world and, you know, everything north of the Queensway, they think that everybody's watching the debates as closely as they are, you know, or paying attention to what people are saying about it on Twitter. Increasingly, people are watching... These leader debates less and less. It more or less tracks their degree of non participation in, in voting and in democracy. So, you know, if, as I think, the Conservative Party strategy was to make the debates a little bit harder to see, perhaps because they're concerned about Thomas Mulcair's, you know, debating chops, um, I, I think there's going to be even fewer see- people seeing the debates this time around than ever before.
2: I, I noticed you didn't say Justin Trudeau's debating chops.
0: Yeah, well, I've been hearing uh, from folks who have direct knowledge of how Trudeau is doing in his debate prep. And, you know, to his credit, he's taking it seriously and uh, he's been, you know, preparing for months and doing. They do these things. I used to do it with Mr. Kretchen, and believe it or not, I would play Stockwell Day or whatever. Yeah, but
2: I I don't think it was a smart move for them to let out that he's been preparing for months with podiums and in opponents because. You can't undersell yourself when you've said, he's doing great and we've been doing this for a long time.
0: Yeah, well, believe me, there's a lot of things these guys do that uh, aren't very smart. But apparently what I'm hearing is that he's not doing particularly well and that you know it is not his forte, that kind of hand-to-hand combat that that Harper and, in particular, Mulcair love and are good at and have experience of doing. And so, you know, the concern is that I'm hearing increasingly among liberals is it's going to be like two men in the and a baby, you know, it's going to be, uh, he's going to be completely dominated by these, these older and much more experienced guys.
2: Okay, well, let's switch roles here because, you know, traditionally I would be attacking liberals, you would be defending liberals, but I've been telling people for the last little while that I don't get what's going on with Trudeau's drop in the polls because in my estimation, He's been doing better for the last little while. He hasn't been putting his foot in it. He, his ability to handle media questions has been getting better. I've been watching his his scrums with the media carefully. He's giving thoughtful answers, real answers, clippable answers, which is incredibly important in a news cycle, and yet he's dropped off. I, I don't think that it's all about C51 as the Toronto Star and others are saying. I think that's part of it. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Is it a a combination of things, including the attack ads wearing on on some people? Is it C-51?
0: What do you take it as? Gordon Campbell, when I advised him some years ago, once said to me, and I think he stole it from somebody else, but I loved it because it was In these things, it's 70% how you look, 20% how you say it, and 10% what you say and I think what's happened, and the Conservative Party's ads brilliantly exploit this, is Justin has not, whether it's because of whip out your CF-18 or Chinese dictatorship or joking about Ukraine or what have you, budgets balance themselves, he hasn't looked and sounded like a prime minister. And that is, you know, I remember I interviewed Dick Morris once, who was uh, one of Bill Clinton's advisors and had a zipper problem like Bill Clinton. And he said to me, "It's how you got to look and sound like, you know the person, the what voters want for that job. You know whether it's president or prime minister. You got to look and sound right, and Justin has not looked and sounded right. And I know his guys had wanted to do the so-called, you know, do politics differently. But you and I both remember the last person who used to talk about doing politics differently. Her, her name was Kim Campbell, and it didn't end too well.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think Preston Manning uh, tried that pitch for a while, Stockwell Day did, and eventually you realize, okay, the public isn't getting on board. So the public is getting on board with Mulcair. I know that for a long time, the Conservatives have portrayed him as uh, a formidable opponent. They respect him. They think he's wrong, but they respect him. Do you think Canadians have come around to respecting him or, and are willing to give his ideas a try, at least? Progressive Canadians are, are willing to say Trudeau's not looking that great. Let's, let's look at Mulcair.
0: What Trudeau's unique sell, selling proposition was for the first two years was if you're looking for a progressive alternative to Stephen Harper, I'm your guy. And, but along came Tom Mulcair who's been validated by these various provincial wins and by smart people like Brad Levine and Anne McGrath and uh, he said, "Wait a second I'm a progressive alternative uh as well, and by the way, I'm a grown up right i you know I'm somebody that you can picture being prime minister, and you know, I think Trudeau's guys thought you know youthfulness like they were doing some Kennedy thing or something, and you know, with youthfulness and do politics differently and say whatever you want, and that's what people want. Now, people may say in polling and in focus groups, yeah, I want politics done differently, but our history shows the minute you start doing that, you start losing the election because people actually don't want you to be that radical or that kind of wacky. They kind of want Walter Cronkite, you know, more than they want, you know, somebody who's young and just says the first thing that pops into their head.
2: Yeah, so Mulcair is looking like the guy that could replace Stephen Harper. Uh, yeah, I'm, Harper. Harper is someone who, for a long time, people were saying we hasn't done a bad job. Even people like yourself would say he's doing some things right.
0: Yeah, he hasn't wrecked the place.
2: So, does he have enough people behind him, or is there a way for him to for
0: Harper to turn it around? Oh, for sure. I still think Harper's going to win. And uh, here's why. You know, there's no question the Conservative Party war room did too good a job on Justin Trudeau. You know, my mom, as you know, is my one-person focus group. She's in her 80s, living alone in Kingston. And we are talking about politics one day. And she said, you know, I just don't think Justin is ready. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) They've got their line in her head within a week of them running the ad. So they've done a very good job, but they've done too good a job. Right? They have decimated Trudeau's reputation and you know let let Mulcair kind of uh rule the roost I think what you're going to start to see now is them swinging their guns towards Mulcair and what they're after is to get Tom Mulcair and Justin Trudeau exactly in the same zone right so the both of them are in the 26-27 zone so basically the progressive side of the uh the equilibrium is splitting itself once again, and Stephen Harper comes up the middle and gets another majority with, you know, 30, 35, 36% of the vote.
2: I I actually still think there's some liberal votes for Stephen Harper to steal if Tom Mulcair pulls out too far in front, because while the liberals and you Democrats will often both say they're on the progressive side, there is a section of the liberal party that says, oh, but not those socialists.
0: Well, I, I happen to work for one of those guys who uh was pretty tough on cutting the budget and and uh, eliminating deficits and all that kind of stuff so i know that you're absolutely right you've got these guys who don't want to see the liberal party moving too far to the left and i think that's one of several mistakes that trudeau's guys made is you know what they said on abortion what they said on gay marriage and all that i'm sure they believed it but it really opened up a wound that didn't need to be opened up well, and, and just, that you, you know they just week. moved too far to the left
2: Just this week, Trudeau came out saying – I mean, in fairness to him, he was asked a question, uh, and it was a loaded question from Vice Canada, Justin Ling, asking him, uh, saying, uh, look, some people in rural Canada don't have the same access to abortion. What will you do as prime minister to ensure that people in rural Canada have easy access to abortion? Well – is prime minister, you can't actually do anything to force the provinces <laughs> to have rural hospitals provide the same services as city hospitals and and both Justins, Justin Lane and Justin Trudeau know that. But Trudeau doubled down and says, Well I'll hold a premier's conference. <laughs> and it's like You're gonna hold a premier's yeah. Yeah. conference to force abortion coverage in rural Saskatchewan? What?
0: Yeah, well, Brian Gallant, who supported Justin Trudeau, would probably be delighted to have a conference and say, you know what, Justin, I'll give you that, but I want $3 billion annualized you know, in my health care transfer because I'm not getting enough. So, like, there's a reason why Stephen Harper stayed away from these first ministers' conferences, because basically when you're prime minister, all it means is bring your checkbook.
2: Yeah, well, I think Paul Martin loved him. I think by the end, intru- uh, Kretchen was fed up with them.
0: Yeah, yeah. He uh he didn't find them terribly useful. I mean it, it all recalled that great line of Justin's father, Pierre Trudeau, which is Canada is a series of fiefdoms held together by regional bribes.
2: <laughs> yeah. True enough. Let me ask you uh before we're we're done here, um the big policy announcement this week, Mulcair, by the way, it, it wasn't a big policy announcement, but he did go to Bay Street and reiterate his economic plan and try to make them believe, hey, look, I, I'm not a crazy socialist. I won't wreck the place, as you say. Uh, but, but Trudeau, um, as one NDPer said, did what we used to do and put out 32 points to try and get some relevancy. 32-point uh, plan, a lot of it on democratic reform. My take is this idea of getting rid of first past the post doesn't actually increase the value of my vote. It increases the value of party bosses. If you go to something yeah, well, like uh, two things on his
0: two things on his announcement. Number one, he is not credible on democratic reform because of his the farce he made of open nominations, because of Bill Blair and Krista Freeland, and you know all the other people he's jammed in there because he preferred them. And and of course, you know, the famous Eve Adams. So he's not credible on the Democratic stuff. So that was a mistake. Um, But the other, you know, mistake is that the guy, as you point out, is making the same mistake that Paul Martin and Lynn McLeod did. When you come up with a 10 or 20 or 30 point plan, nobody can remember the damn thing. What works is what had did with his red book. You know, I got the team. I got the plan vote for me or Mike Harris. You know,
2: what was his plan?
0: Jobs, Workfare jobs, and, yeah, jobs. Had, no,
2: no. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and I mean, it was, too, it was an right? extensive book, but all he ever said was jobs, jobs, jobs for 37 days.
0: And, Kretz, and uh, Harper, you know, it's 10 years ago, and I can still remember his five um, points.
2: Cut the GST, because, healthcare wait times, universal child care.
0: Accountability Act, you know, right. cleaning up politics. Okay, so we can so it four is, out
2: of five. That's pretty good ten years later.
0: That is pretty good. And you know, the thirty two point thing, I challenge anybody who's listening to us. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can name ten of Trudeau's points this week off the top of your head. It can't be done. And they may have been great points. I, I just don't know. It's it's too much stuff. And now they've released it. They've been panicked by the NDP position in the polls and their Russian policy out the door. Um, it, you know, in the hope that it's going to pull them back up. I, I don't think it is.
2: Oh, okay, but on on the changing our voting system, I've never been a fan of this. I'd like to I'd like to see, you know change the way our parliament works. I think currently parties have too much power. That's baked into the system in terms of how parliament works. I think party leaders still have too much power. But if you go to something like proportional representation, where You know, this party gets 30 percent of the seats or even mixed member where they get 30 percent of an allotment of the seats. Well, it's the party that picks the guys on that list. And so now instead of trying to win over the favor of voters back home, they don't have a back home. And they're just kissing up to Katie Telford for the liberals or Jenny Byrne for the conservatives or Anne McGrath for the NDP.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's not a good idea. And the people who tend to favor it, I went through this with McGinty because, as you recall, he put it on the ballot in uh, 2007 and the people of Ontario defeated it. And the only people who voted for it, when we looked at the numbers afterwards, were New Democrats. Right. Because it means that they're going to be in power or they're going to be doing much better. Than they ever have before. So,
2: you know, I don't favor and having Andrew an Israeli Coyne.
0: system where we have no majority governments ever. That hasn't helped Israel and it won't help us.
2: Yeah, well, New Democrats and Andrew Coyne love it.
0: And that's about Yeah, well, of course. You're the colonists and they, you know, come down and shoot the wounded and they would just love it because it would just be nonstop conflict. Nothing would get done. We need majority governments, particularly when we have terrorism in the form of ISIS, or we have economic instability, you need to have majority governments that can make clear and decisive decisions, whether you agree with them or not. And uh, having us tied to minorities, well, all of us remember what happened in Ontario when that that was going on. I think there was a single bill that went through the legislature. Just one. Because Wynne couldn't do anything that wasn't going to result in the Tories and or the NDP defeating her.
2: Warren? Wise words. It's going to be fun over the next few months. It sure will. Right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks soon. Bye.
3: We don't listen to him because he's sexy, but it doesn't hurt. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast.
2: You are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. There's a lot of similarities between Ottawa and Washington. They are both cities that people in the rest of the country love to hate. They're cities that are the butt of jokes. They're the places that the politicians go. They're both built on swamps to some degree. But then there's the fact that people from across the United States flock to Washington as tourists and people across Canada do the same to Ottawa. Why? Well, because politics matters. They also do it because of the architectural beauty, the museums and more. Well, I've had the pleasure of having some time in Washington, D.C., a bit of time covering. I've been to the White House to cover events. I've been to uh, the old executive office building and CPAC. But I haven't spent as much time in Washington, D.C. as my friend Jessica Murphy, who is back in Ottawa after spending how long? Uh, just
4: over a year and a half.
2: Just over a year and a half. So that's, that's enough time to get a, a fair sense of a city. I mean, because you lived right in D.C., right? You weren't off in Alexandria or something like that.
4: I was right in the heart of so D.C. So
2: what are – we'll get into the political differences in a minute, and there's a lot, but culturally – what are some of the differences? I mean, for the most part, Canadians and Americans share a common culture, but there's differences too. So w- between Ottawa and Washington, what would you say?
4: The, you know what? It's interesting. Being a Canadian, you do blend in very much to, uh, to with Americans, that people don't automatically know that you're Canadian. So you're kind of a covert observer of the culture, I think. Uh, and, and you do blend in well. And It's subtle, but there are differences. I mean, I was down in Washington at a time when um, a lot of things were happening in the U.S. Take Ferguson and all the the issues around policing and race. And I just was almost surprised by how willing Americans were and how open they were to talk about some of these subjects. They're really willing to kind of touch on issues of race and culture, uh, really get in there and debate that kind of thing and that kind of took me aback, maybe as well, a polite also, Canadian, you know? We,
2: I'm not going to say, look, there aren't racial divisions in Canada or that we don't have racism. I, I think we do. I think it exists, and, and I don't think it's a one-way street either. But I don't think we have the racial divisions that they have either. It's, it's not as deep, I, and, and I don't fully understand it.
4: No, and I don't fully understand it either. Uh, you know you, you get a sense of it, but you don't necessarily get that that you, when you grow up in a place, there's something innate about it within you and you just kind of get the warp and woof, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Uh, but it was interesting going in and watching that and and yeah, you're right. there is you know, racial issues in the US are are, are very strong, very historical, uh, they run deep. Um, but it, it did surprise me just. Just even on cable news, the ability to have conversations, sometimes these difficult conversations that would come up that you don't that, you know, we talk about that kind of thing here. But I just thought they really well, got into the nitty gritty of th-
2: it. That, that was uh, part of the beauty of the now defunct Sun news is that we weren't worried about being as polite. And um, so we would have discussions like that. So I, I think that that can be beneficial. I don't think sweeping everything under the rug is necessarily always a good thing.
4: Well, I thought it was interesting to watch and to listen, and I did. Again, because I was an observer, I did learn a lot, and I, and I did get a sense of some of the issues from that debate. So that was one of the things that I noticed uh, culturally. And I've one of the things that I've said to a lot of friends who've asked me about it or, or Canadians when I come back here when I'm talking about the U.S. is one of the things that they do is they seem to do everything really badly and really well all at once. You know what I mean? Like Politically
2: speaking. Not
4: even. I mean, just, you know, they have, you can get some of the best food in the U.S., some of the best healthcare in the U.S., and some of the worst of both in the U.S. at the same time. Their banking system, I mean, they were, you know, if you want to talk about innovations in the banking system and competitiveness and all of that stuff, but let's look back at 2008 and see what, you know, their banks helped do along with other things. It was, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy of how they do things I guess to the extreme, to a point. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but there is that element within their culture where they do things. They like to push the boundaries. A we little we bit.
2: like to be uh, along the mushy middle.
4: We do. I think we're a little more comfortable there. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> I, I remember seeing uh, things like drive-through banks. You know, because like a lot of Canadians, I got I have relatives down there, and you go down to Chicago in the mid '80s, if not the early '80s, and they got drive-through banks. And what? How do, you, how do you do that we, we don't have that
4: and yet why not why yeah. not <laughs> uh,
2: although i I have to say on in terms of being able to use your debit card that's not as prevalent down there
4: no, and they still don't have the chips on their bank cards, yeah, and that was an issue with some of the whole some of the issues they had with uh uh, you know, identity theft and stuff with some of the big corporations. And, and they came down and said, well, you know, all our bank cards need chips. But that was something that the banks didn't necessarily want to want to go through with. And that was just one of those things I noticed on well, passing.
2: Let's talk about politics and, and how – because that's one of the areas. We were talking yesterday over coffee, and thanks for the coffee today, by the way, uh, returning the favor. So as far as the politics, you said yesterday – They do things, uh, they do the best and they do the worst. And I look at, at our parliament and the parties are all controlling. I know everyone wants to say, oh, it's just Stephen Harper. No, they're all like this. They all control their members. And then I look at the United States and there'll be a bill and you've got Republicans and Democrats arguing amongst each other openly. We just saw this with um, the Fast Track Authority, what's been dubbed uh, Obama trade, and that was defeated by far left Democrats and the one conservative faction of the Republicans, because there were other conservatives who would never be called rhinos like Ted Cruz, who, who were supporting it. And then you had others who were opposing it. And so there is this independence among their politicians that we don't have.
4: No, I mean, call it horse trading, call it herding cats. It's, it, 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 And it's fascinating when you're covering politics down there. One of the things I really enjoyed is there's a lot of suspense. You don't necessarily know where a bill will go. And you don't necessarily uh, know the outcome. And it does change day to day. You're calling up people saying, well, how many votes do you have now? How many votes do you have now? And they say, oh, we think we can get 60. Oh, we think we can get, you know, we think we have these two senators Obama on board. Obama trade.
2: They they thought it was going to pass that day.
4: And then it doesn't. Right. So there is that suspense. And there really is um, sort of a richness to, to that political culture in terms of you know, again, for good and bad, because sometimes it, it, it's not always great, but, but you do have that element of, of people making, you know, direct representation in the sense of senators, congressmen voting for, you know, different reasons and sometimes very much for their constituents against something that, you know, their party doesn't necessarily support.
2: They still have whip votes now and again, though. They do still have whip votes now. But and if, it's, if it's something that um, a particular senator or congressman doesn't like, they will buck party lines.
4: They absolutely will buck party lines. Uh, and, and, and I saw that in a number of, of bills uh, that I covered at the time. Uh, and again, it, you know, it was it was interesting seeing the, the, the drama unfold on a daily basis when it came to that horse trading of votes and that debate over votes and, and getting people on board and really having to make the case in certain, uh, in any number of reasons for the bills and why you wanted that bill to pass, why you wanted to. To vote for there, there really is sort yeah. of a fight for the legislation.
2: I'm trying to think of a suspenseful vote that we've had here in Ottawa. And pretty much once a party leader makes up their mind, you know how the vote's going to go. Uh, I can think of only a handful. Um, Chuck Cadman standing up in, and and uh, not voting with the Conservatives to keep uh, Paul Martin's government alive.
4: Some of the That's gun one. registry ones as well were were. Certainly you had you had a division there within yeah. parties where and you then, saw
2: uh if you remember back to um uh I think it was Ignatiev was was leader, it was no, Ignatiev or maybe it was in the Bob Ray interim days. Uh they tried to um they tried to still minority. They tried to get the uh pass a motion calling on the conservatives to put um abortion into Harper's maternal and child health thing, and a bunch of liberals stood up and voted against it. But that is so rare. That we're trying, we're sitting here, both of us, who've both covered Ottawa extensively, saying, "Huh, when does that happen?" And it just doesn't. I, I, I think we're missing out with that, and I think that's one of the many signs that, in our politics, party leaders have too much sway over individual MPs.
4: I mean it is a way more centralized power structure here just de facto. I mean just the way the way that you know the Westminster system works compared to to what you have in the US. Um I But in the U.S. there is an issue with gridlock and and a a real frustration among Americans with the do-nothing Congress. And it just seemed that every Congress, you know, after each midterm, after each presidential election, did less and less and less and became more and more divisive. And there was a real frustration for that. So at the same time, the best and the worst, right, of of these political systems. And
2: and then, you know, as we have here, an increasingly powerful executive – uh seven I, I heard this stat the other day Seventy-five thousand new regulations were passed in the United States last year I mean nobody can keep on top of that many regulations and have a clue so there's a good chance everybody's breaking the law because nobody knows what it is um lobbyists uh they're very different in both cities I remember years ago speaking to a uh, a friend who's a lobbyist here in Ottawa and he said he was down at a conference of lobbyists in D.C. And the guys in D.C. couldn't believe that lobbyists in Ottawa were not allowed to raise money for the politicians that they were lobbying. That's all they do down there, isn't it?
4: Money, I mean, money is just a almost – almost every day when I was down there covering politics, I was shocked by the amount of money in the system – um, be it with super PACs, but also through lobbying, through... Um, through. I mean, look, this just the steakhouses around the Capitol. I think, says a lot, right? I mean, you had so many really great steakhouses charging a, a lot of money for fantastic uh, fantastic meals, I, I even funded learn, by lobbyists.
2: I did learn not to go to a steakhouse in D.C. with Canadian lobbyists because they will leave before the bill shows up. That happened once.
4: Difference in culture. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, but, I mean, th- there's... There is a lot of money, a lot of influence of outside groups, but it's groups from all sides. It's not, I I know you hear about the Koch brothers, Koch brothers, Koch brothers. Everybody's in the game down there.
4: Absolutely. There is, uh, the money is weighed right now a little more towards, in terms of sheer volume of money towards the Republicans. But the Democrats are, have their own, you know, stable of billionaires as well in there. Tom Steyer, for one, who's uh You know, One of the chief opponents to Keystone XL, which has a lot of relevance here in Canada, is a huge funder of of his own super PAC and and very influential within democratic circles. So it is both sides. You do, of course, have the unions. You do have a lot of other players in, in the U.S. That's another thing that I noticed is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, big player. In in the last midterm elections, and they will be in these uh, this coming presidential race. I mean, they're and again
2: another group that splits off the uh, left wing uh, Democrats and the right wing Republicans, oh, and annoys the, them both.
4: Oh, the establishment Republicans and sort of the and Tea the, Party and and the the but, sort of staunch conservative ones definitely. But, but the Chamber of Commerce
2: seems to be that group in the middle that gets the establishment of both parties very happy, and annoys. The wings of both parties.
4: That I think that would be very true. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, what else do you you're coming back to Ottawa now, and you're you're arriving here as we're looking at our election? Um, What else is standing out to you in terms of how we do politics differently, or is there something that we could adapt from their system?
4: They're such very different systems. I mean, one thing that that. I, did, I mean when you when you do come back to Canada is you notice that it's smaller um in america you're it is a superpower it is tremendously influential. the world is watching what happens uh in the u s even you know the press corps is I mean, you have representatives from media all over the world. The State Department has its own foreign media center to help deal with, handle all the the influx of people coming in, and they hold you know briefings on occasion with with some of the State Department spokespeople and so on. Um, so so it's so much more watched. And when you come back here, it is a little it's a little quieter. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but. Um,
2: it's one of the things I like about
4: <laughs> one of the Yes, exactly. Uh, very quiet on a Sunday, for sure. I enjoyed, um, I did enjoy seeing and say what you will about, you know, the Citizens United ruling that allowed for, you know, unlimited outside spending uh, during election periods and what have you that created the whole super PACs. And I think a lot of what's happening around Citizens United w- the U.S. is still trying to figure it out. I mean, it is still uh, a process that's ongoing in terms of changing their whole political system. Um, but I did enjoy the fact that there were so many players in politics. It would come in well, and really wanted to ha- have have things to say. We're seeing it a little here. I mean, you know, we do. I think a lot of political systems do sometimes pick up campaign elements uh, from the U.S., not just Canada, but the U.K. and so on as well. Um, but I did. That was something that I liked. And I, and I think that at least the, the sort of the civic engagement that I saw in the U.S.
2: The, well, the, OK, let me ask you about civic engagement in a minute. But there is no Chamber of Commerce equivalent in Canada standing up for the business community. But you do have the unions learning an awful lot from SEIU uh, or the uh, you know similar organizations in the States and bringing their playbook up here. I've been saying for months now that Unifor... It's like they – and maybe one day we'll find out they did. It's like they went down to Organizing for America, uh, Obama's super PAC, and said, teach us everything you know because they're going around doing community organizing in little towns all across the country, and I don't think we'll see the impact of what they're doing now until voting day.
4: In terms of what the unions in Canada are doing? Yeah,
2: but there's there's no equivalent – on that level uh on on the right or in the center
4: no and that's again one of the things i i sort of noticed coming back and um i would like to see more you know engagement of all sides Uh, the more you debate around politics and the more you debate around ideas the better the ideas are in the long run um so so i enjoyed that and again it's tough because you you are seeing just mind-boggling amounts of money going into uh, into politics in the U.S., um, and there's a lot of criticism about that, and, I, and a lot of it, I think, is fair. Also, if you're in any market in a very contested race or in New Hampshire or Iowa, oh. one of those early caucus states, just turn off your television now because you will not be able to get away from political advertising. You, and I you,
2: think You know what's the absolute worst in, in terms of attack ads? I don't have a problem with attack ads, and the ones we do here are so mild. Uh, but even the ones that they do for presidential politics on either side are relatively mild, but then you get into the local races; uh, those are nasty. I mean, you know, they're, ba- they're they're one step away from calling each other criminals in every ad.
4: They are. They are <laughs> fascinating. They can be entertaining. They can be um, completely ridiculous. There's a lot of creativity Did that actually the goes. Did you know that Congressman
2: so and so was this and you know, whoa?
4: And they keep records, right, of, of everything. And and some of these um, again, some of these super PACs have become pretty much de facto opposition research for, for you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, and, you know, I know for a fact you can call them up and say, as a journalist, and say, look, you know, so-and-so said something on this policy. I know you guys keep track of this. What did, you know, ex-politician say in 1982 about, about this policy? And they can just and pull it up and it. tell you, you know. And it's actually kind of a good resource to have as a journalist <laughs> because, you know— um we've had so many staff cuts it's just nice to have someone to do the research for you but but it is in that they do have you know they keep all these voting records and and they're recording everything you've ever said on television so they can bring it up down the road um it it is it is there's a lot of sharp elbows in american politics
2: all right i want to close out on on a more fun note buying good wine at walmart
4: (laughs) you can and it will not break the bank i had so cheap I had this this story. Um, there is a wine. You know, there's there's a sort of a go-to wine that you yeah. pick up for for dinner parties and the like. And there was just, just this Chianti that I brought because it really went with everything. It wasn't too bold. Um, and and it was in the, you know, a 14 to $15 range. I don't know what it is now that I'm coming back. It seems like wine prices have gone up since I was gone. Um, but enough that you'd bring to a dinner party and you're not embarrassing yourself by bringing plonk.
2: And, and you're, you're not spending so much that, you know you're showing them, look how snooty I am. No, it's just, it's a mid-range wine. I
4: like my friends to know where they stand with me, you know? I don't <laughs> <laughs> but, so I go down there, and I go into a Walgreens, and I see this Chianti, and it's, it's $8.99. And I think, oh, wow, prices here are are, are good. They're better, that's great. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I'm in a Walmart, and I see the same thing, and it was $4.99. And I just thought, have I been bringing Plonk to my friend's house all these years? <laughs> Uh, but you can actually get really nice wine at a at a really nice level, um, and uh, and so just yeah, you know first, you can first, go across the border and bring back if you stay long enough, bring back a couple bottles.
2: First time I discovered that I was uh, I was down in Dallas and they had a Walmart next to the hotel I was at, I was staying up by Six Flags in in, in Arlington, um, and well Six Flags and Cowboy Stadium, and then there's this big Walmart next door, so I wander over while I had some free time, and yeah, all these wines that we were you know to $15 as you say four ninety nine there but the kicker for me was I, I've got a friend who his wife is um, a bit more particular in terms of what she'll serve guests and there's a, a, a specific wine it's you know in the mid 20 range here and, and I found it for less than 10 bucks at the Seven Eleven gas station last time I was down in Dallas and so you know if it's under 10 bucks at a gas station that it, you're going to find it cheaper elsewhere you know God bless America for that.
4: Hey, I, I I don't know how my liver's doing after 18 months down there, but I took advantage <laughs> of it. I did. I definitely took advantage of the prices.
2: Well, welcome back to Canada now. Thank you. Jess I'm glad Kamurphy. to be back. Jessica Murphy. Watch for her uh, to appear somewhere soon, hopefully. All right. Don't go away. Uh, more to come on the Brian Lilly Podcast. Of course, check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash brianlilly or brianlilly.com, and you can sign up for the mailing list.
3: He's got more than a face for radio. Check Brian out at facebook.com slash Brian Lilly.
2: You're listening to the voice of the unofficial resistance. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Welcome back to the Brian Lilly Podcast, coming to you again from my back deck. Laptop, microphone, on new RE20, beautiful microphone, beer at my side, and the sunshine. So like I said, I'm on the back deck, so you might hear neighbors working, you might hear kids cheering, screaming. Don't think it's warm enough for the neighbors to be using their pool, uh, but if you hear background noise, that's what's going on, on this Father's Day weekend. Now been talking about Canadian politics at the beginning and polls with Kinsella and then the difference between Canadian and American politics with Jessica Murphy. I want to talk now about the difference within the United States between what happened in Baltimore, what happened in Ferguson, and what happened in South Carolina. I am the first to admit that I don't fully understand the racial tensions and divisions that they have in the United States. I've said that before. I said it earlier. I'll say it again. I just, I don't fully get it. And, and unless, I I think unless you've really grown up in that, in that environment, you're not going to, or maybe you come from a very similar environment where based on race, people will not often trust each other. But that's the reality in many parts of the United States, not all, not all of the United States, but in certain parts. And so we've seen riots. We've seen riots in uh, in Ferguson after the, uh, the death of Michael Brown in uh, in Baltimore. There were protests in New York, but it didn't get as violent. while there were two police officers killed. Um, but after Freddie Gray in Baltimore, riots for days and then we had Dylan Roof this week, Wednesday, walked into a historic, all black church, or historically black church, not all black. They opened their doors to absolutely everyone that wants to come and worship God. Emanuel African-American Methodist Episcopal Church. It is the oldest black church south of Baltimore. And there were a group of people praying in there, doing Bible study on Wednesday night. Dylan Roof went in to join them. And he sat there for an hour. And then he pulled out a .45 and started shooting, killing nine of them. According to documents used by police to get the arrest warrant, according to witness, spoke to police, making and this this is the police term, racially inflammatory comments. He said clearly that he was doing this to start a race war. He has since told police investigators who have spoken to the media that he wanted to start a race war. And there were lots of fears that that is what was going to happen in tension-filled, in the tension-filled United States. I can't say what... South Carolina is like, I haven't been there in a couple of years. I've met very good people from South Carolina. But we all know that the United States is on edge over what's been going on the last couple of years. And here you've got a young man filled with hate. Showing up and killing people in hopes of fueling more of that anger in the hopes of getting American turning on American. I don't know that I could have reacted the way that many of the people who've been directly affected by this have. Chris and Cameron are the daughters of Sharonda Singleton. They spoke to many media outlets the day after their mother was killed the day after their mother was killed by a man that said he was killing them because she was black and blacks were taking over the country. And they stood and talked to white reporters. And instead of being filled with anger, they were filled with forgiveness. They admitted that it was hard, but they were filled with forgiveness huge part of what they said.
1: We forgive. That's one thing we're going to do. We forgive right now for everything that's happened. She's the best mom I've ever could even ask for. And honestly, it's going to be tough, but I know we'll get through it as a family. And that's what she would want. And I know she's in a great place right now.
2: Could you do that? Could you do that if somebody killed Your relative, your mother, your daughter, your sister, your brother. Simply because of who they were or what they were. Because he didn't know them. He wasn't killing her because he knew her and she was awful to him. No, he was killing her because she was black. Could you forgive someone that did that to your family? There's families that haven't forgiven other families over generations for things that have happened. But in this case... There's forgiveness, and not just from the Singleton family. On Friday, the arraignment for Dylan Roof happened. Despite the fact that he fled, he apparently wanted to get back to South Carolina real quick. He was captured in North Carolina. He could have fought going back there, required an extradition, extradition hearing. He waived that and was promptly taken back, and he was arraigned on Friday. And the judge hearing the request for what the bond should be at was set at $1 million allowed families to make victim impact statements And several family members came forward and said that they were going to forgive Dylan Roof. Again, I, I don't know that I could do that. I, I think it's wonderful that they did. I mean, I, I don't even know if I can say that because this man is, he's evil personified. I don't want to call him an animal. I don't want to call him crazy. That diminishes what he did. He's a man driven by evil and driven by hatred. And maybe there's mental illness in there. We don't know yet. But we do know that that was an act of evil that he perpetrated. And these people turned around and responded with love and forgiveness and said that they hoped that he found God. And that is not something that I am sure that I could do. It may be what we're called to do. And so as that arraignment's happening and news reports are coming out about this, I want you to listen to the audio of MSNBC anchor Thomas Roberts. He was down across from Emanuel Church. And people were gathering there to talk. And as the news is coming out of the arraignment and reports coming to him and he's you know trying to relay this information to his audience about what's happened at the arraignment and, and what the judge said and what the bond's been put at and what family members had said that was just so remarkable. Hundreds of people started showing up, walking up the street and singing gospel songs and listen to. Thomas Roberts just, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to react.
1: This case, been hearing emotional testimony from the family, but can we look over here right now? I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. Uh, They're singing, and a whole flood of people showed up. At the same time, this arraignment was taking place. So you're hearing uh, from the family and this whole group of people showed up and they're singing a gospel song Uh, and you heard from the family members of uh, those who were lost uh, and I apologize but you can see the outpouring uh, of support for this community it goes all the way down the street uh, of people that showed up at the exact same time that this arraignment was going on, and we heard from the family members of Ethel Lance, from Myra Thompson, Daniel Simmons, Ty Sanders, uh, and I don't, I'm sorry. Uh...
2: Up near the front of that line that walked up to Emanuel Church. Was my friend Glenn Beck. Walking up with his wife, Tanya. Lovely woman that grounds him. He says it, but I've seen it. A woman that grounds him in knowing what's right and what's wrong. And Glenn takes a lot of flack for a lot of things. But he knew that he had to go to Emmanuel. He's not alone in going there. And I won't say that he led the march, but he, he was near the front. He wasn't right at the front, but he was near there. And I'm saying I'm not going to give him credit for leading because he went there hoping to experience, maybe stop something. He wanted to make sure that he did what he could to make sure Charleston didn't turn into, into Baltimore or Ferguson. But the fact is the people of that city had already decided that that is not how they would react. That gives us all hope. And we need hope and we need unity and we need love. And there's too little of that in the world. And for pointing this out the other day, for pointing this out in a monologue for the rebel and for talking about maybe Charleston can be a, a, an example for us all, I was attacked online for excusing the killer, for having white privilege, for saying I forgive the killer, which I didn't. I can't. And like I've said to you, I'm not sure that I can. We need to get out of this habit of simply attacking each other, especially when bad things happen. Charleston is an example of the good that is in people and people that have differences, whether it's race or politics or religion coming together and saying, we will not let this destroy us. It's a powerful example, the most powerful I have seen in a long time. God bless the people of Charleston today. God bless you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Brian Lilly Podcast. And uh, do check out, as I said, the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly or BrianLilly.com to stay up to date on what I'm doing with the rebel and elsewhere. Remember, I'm on your side.
3: Join the Rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media.